0: 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. Don't forget Brian Kilmeade is coming back to St. Louis in just a few weeks. It's two weeks from this Friday. I cannot believe that Thanksgiving is a week from tomorrow, but on Friday, December 1st, from 6 to 10 p.m. in um, Eureka, Silo Point, Brookdale Farms, we're going to have a dinner. Brian's coming in. He'll have a copy for you, a copy of his book, Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blaze the Path for Racial Equality. It'll be a great dinner from Andre's Catering, a premium open bar, plus music from Tom Norton. Now, the ticket prices are 110 per person, 110 We We thought, you know, we always kind of wonder about that. What's the price point? What's going to get people to buy? People have been buying these tickets like crazy. You're going to have a ton of fun. This is going to sell out, so we're we're kind of approaching our capacity. There are tickets available. I think there's probably... 50 tickets available at this point, but that might be 25 couples. So check it out. Go to 971talk.com slash events to buy your tickets, and we'll see you on December 1st. We have Josh Hammer coming in. I'm excited about this. He actually messaged me yesterday because he said he was in St. Louis. We've had him as a contributor for many years now here on my show, senior editor-at-large for Newsweek. It was funny because the first time that we uh, encountered Josh – Fred and I both were, were I, I don't know if I ran across something or what happened. I'm like, wait, Newsweek, that's real different than I remember. A conservative is writing some editorials. But that's exactly what happened. And he'll have some um, interesting takes on everything that's happening in, in Israel and in Gaza, the pro-Israel rally from yesterday, some of the lessons from the election last week, etc. Right now, we're going to be dazzled by another one of our regular contributors, Dave Strom from HotAir.com, associate editor. He's up in Minneapolis with our, I think, three feet of snow on the ground at this point in november david how are you welcome back this afternoon good to have you i will have
1: you know that it's going to be 64 and sunny
0: tomorrow isn't that great we we have that going on right now too and i will absolutely take it for november for sure
1: yeah well here in minnesota you know we get teased a lot and then uh, we get slapped in the face kicked in the shins and frostbite come January. I mean, it is just hideous, but that makes you appreciate days like today and tomorrow.
0: I always like the fall, even when I was in Milwaukee, where you had some of the same thing that was going on. Where you are, you know, you get these nice fall days, and it, it makes it all worth it. Let's talk about some issues here. You wrote about this. I thought this was interesting, and I pulled the audio, Dave, from this. Uh, the BBC doing this reporting here. We
1: are hearing from Reuters that is reporting that Israel. It says its forces are carrying out an operation against Hamas in Gaza's Al Shifa Hospital, and they are targeting people, including medical teams as well as Arab speakers.
0: So, Dave Strom, when he wrote about this, he said the. BBC, which has spent the past month being a Western spokesman for Hamas, which is essentially the truth, uh, here's what they had to say.
2: Now, uh, an apology from the BBC. A
0: BBC News, uh, as it
2: covered uh, initial reports that Israeli forces has entered Gaza's main hospital. We said that medical teams and Arab speakers were being targeted. This was incorrect
0: and misquoted a Reuters report. We should have said IDF forces included medical teams and Arabic speakers for this operation. All right, making a little mistake there, Dave Strong. right? Look at that. And then they corrected it. Go figure. But this has been happening on a regular basis.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the BBC, and in fact, most Western uh, uh, mainstream media outlets are constantly quoting Hamas, but not telling you it's Hamas. They'll come up with something like, you know, the Gaza Health Ministry, as as if that's some objective organization out there. Gaza is run by Hamas. Hamas is the government of uh, Gaza. And Israel isn't just fighting uh, terrorists. The terrorists are the military of uh, of Gaza, who spend $350 million a year on their military. Uh, and so You know the BBC and a lot of these other outlets. BBC is among the worst. uh, Are doing the bidding of Hamas, and some of it's because of ideological reasons. Is clearly true for the BBC. I mean, even though they corrected this, this is going to be repeated. As propaganda all around the world, you know that this audio and video is going to be going out to gin people up and saying an oops, I'm sorry, afterwards does nothing.
0: Some some of the media coverage Uh, has been... I, I highlighted something the other day from the Washington Post. I don't even know how you explain this. So, and this was in the same... I don't know if it was in the same print edition because I don't get the print edition, but on the website prominently featured... Within the same period of time on Monday, here's one story, David. It says Gaza reports more than 11,100 killed. That's one out of every 20 people. And they do this whole story in in its empathy for Hamas. They include doctors, journalists, professors, and poets. More than 11,000—I feel like I need music here—11,100 Palestinians have been killed. By the way, we don't even know if those numbers are close. And they quote the aforementioned Gaza Health Ministry. So there's that story, which I thought, really? And they start putting pictures of kids in here and— how 87 children were killed in Gaza in one attack. But in the same moment, they have on The Washington Post this story, which seems pretty relevant to the other story that says Hamas envisioned deeper attacks aiming to provoke an Israeli war, and they go into great detail here of how some of the killing took place, of how some of the Hamas you know, terrorists took pride and bragged about this. So how does that even get juxtaposed in the same outlet in one day? It's stunning to me.
1: Well, if, for the same reason that if you go to the front page of the Washington Post today, I mean, there were, what, 350,000 people uh, supporting Israel in uh, Washington, D.C. yesterday. I don't know it if was the precise incredible. number, but, but the numbers were yeah. hundreds of thousands of people, and they bury that in the metro
0: section. How is that? Uh, I I mean, I know how bad the media is. We highlight it all the time. You highlight it at hot air. But some of this now is is just even making me shake by. I can't even believe they're doing it.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I've been saying now for years that it's all about creating a narrative. And what has happened really since uh, 2015, 2016, when Donald Trump got in the race, the media decided for whatever reason that they had to save the world from you know the evil fascists who were coming and therefore they had to drop all pretense of covering things fairly uh and in fact uh you know christina amanpour just had her i forget how many decades she's been in the media uh but uh she in in she created this T shirt that said uh, be truthful not fair. Uh, you know the idea being that if you're fair you're helping the bad guys and clearly the media folks at least most of them see Hamas is the good guys and Israel is the bad guys. In fact I've got a piece coming out tomorrow. About something that just bugs the heck out of me, which is uh how you get this coverage of all these people in the streets about uh you know how awful Israel is about Gaza, and no one is talking except people on the right about the hostages, so you have all these people who are morally preening about everything uh you know happening in Gaza, and they just completely ignore the fact. Uh, that, you know, if they release the hostages, uh, it would be an entirely different situation. But Hamas wants to keep them. And so, and these people are just endorsing that. They're going out and pretending the hostages don't exist, they're ripping down the posters. Uh, you know, even the sort of nicest, most compassionate, I just want peace people are. Uh, You know, implicitly endorsing the idea that, well, since Israel is the bad guy, Hamas can do whatever they want. Right, right. Yeah. They deserve it.
0: For example, here's uh, you highlighted this too. Here's our friend Greta Thunberg, who's taking the side of Hamas. So, well, yes,
1: this attack was initiated by Hamas. This is not just about Hamas. This is about Palestinian resistance. This is finally Palestinians taking
0: action towards the occupation and so please support the resistance. Yeah, so she went further than that because she was doing one of her climate, you know, nonsense things. And somebody got up there and said, look, w- w- she starts referring to this situation and they weren't interested. We have not been listening. The people in power have not been listening. I come here for
2: a
1: climate demonstration, not a political view. <laughs> I,
0: isn't that- Yeah, Dave, that got a little nasty there. Greta's trying to make more uh, comments about Israel and the climate change, you know, folks who are problematic in themselves didn't like that messaging. She's a peach, isn't she?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I used to, to, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say forgive her, but I thought, well, I'm not going to make fun of a teenager Uh, who's being exploited
0: by her parents. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: It, or, yeah. It's her. It's her parents. It's the U.N., all the people who are latching on to her. Uh, she's just the excuse. But now she has no excuse. I mean, she's an adult. Uh, she's come out and basically, you know, said she's a communist. Uh, she's clearly a revolutionary. And uh, it's no longer a joke. Uh uh, you know but none of this is a joke i mean the the younger generation people basically under 30 have been indoctrinated in this oppressor uh, oppressed dichotomy and if you're oppressed you can do anything that's right uh and if you're an oppressor we are oppressors it doesn't just to be matter clear right dave
0: do. just you and i we just should be yeah. honest about it we're oppressors right Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, anyone who's who's white or white adjacent or a conservative and they're black, everyone is a white supremacist and we're trying to to destroy the world. And it's just absurd and morally inverted and perverted. It really is morally perverted uh, because they are basically saying you can put babies in ovens and bake them alive. And they joke about it. And they know, take leave. They,
0: uh, that, that's the thing about the video that we hear about, which I think everyone should have access to that. They don't have to watch it. We're not going to force people to watch it. But why not make that yeah. unedited vi- video available to media outlets and then people can choose whether they want to see it or not? All right, I want to buzz through a couple other things here. This is concerning to me. I like Nikki Haley quite a bit, but she says this. They need to verify every single person on their outlet because and I want it by name. Because when what about you, Smug? Does he, he qualify? I've provided them <laughs> with my government. If,
2: <laughs>
0: if Smug is on your driver's license, then, and look, you can put Smug in parentheses, but I want everybody's name. I think I follow comfortably Smug. That's the reference there. But she's talking about, yeah. David, like anonymous Twitter accounts, which, I, where did this come from? And is this a good idea? I don't think it is at all.
1: Oh, I think it's a horrible idea. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, the... The problem is, is it's one of these ideas that has a surface appeal to a lot of people because, you know, people online can be jerks, right? I mean, we all know that, and they're bots out there, and we like to see the bots go away. Uh, the problem is, is that, I mean, think about, you know, what happens to someone like Chaya Rychik, uh, lives of TikTok. She, yeah. she was anonymous. Uh, and doing a tremendous service, and the left hated her so much that uh they doxed her, and she got fired for that uh and this has happened to lots of people, and uh, you know now uh she has managed to make a gig out of this, but if she that's a, that only is like one out of a thousand or one out of ten thousand people who can survive something like that and thrive. So, uh, you know, if you go back to the time of the founders, uh, much of what was written during that time, up to including the Federalist Papers, it was all done anonymously. Yeah, that was a good point. I and, mean you made
0: that point in the column. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, go read the Federalist Papers, and they're under pseudonyms. And there, there was a reason for that, to, uh, you know, to get away from ad hominem attacks uh, during the revolution itself. Obviously, it was dangerous uh, to put your name on things. Uh, but, you know, it, it goes well beyond that. This is just part of free speech. And that means that at times we have to endure some people being jerks. Uh, uh, you know, behind yeah. anonymity.
0: Well, and I, I agree but, with that. All right, one more topic, though, because I thought this was pretty good, and I was maybe not shocked by it, but we have, help me out here, David, we have Transgender Awareness Week. This is like, this yeah. is Transgender <laughs> Awareness Week, right? Didn't we have that in May or something like that? What What's the difference between what happened in the spring? I
1: don't know. I mean, you know, in this month, there are actually three different transgender things. Uh, there was... Uh, Uh, Transgender Parents Day. Now it's Transgender Awareness Week. That's this week. So, you know, get out your scalpel to cut something off. Uh, And then uh, you're going to have a Transgender Day of Remembrance uh, later on in the month. Uh, You know, they're they're just going to replace every day with some sort of alphabet uh, celebration or another. I mean, you've had... pansexual awareness day asexual awareness day
0: i don't know if they've had fuzzy yet but that'll be coming soon but they did they legit had in march trans day of visibility right so you don't you get essentially pride month is now at least two months i'd say three months because pride month is in june but there were things related to pride month and emails that were going off at the end of april so th- this is pretty, oh, yeah. pretty successful. You don't get a whole lot of other days for other holidays. David, thank you so much. You have a great Thanksgiving. If we don't chat, and we'll talk to you very, very soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Sue Thomas will be back tomorrow. We miss her tremendously. I, you know, it's funny because I got on to, uh, I thought about Sue today. I got onto 270 in the middle of the day, which I rarely do. I take 44 in from the uh, the Fenton area. and. 270 at like 1130 12 o'clock today was just jam-packed so i completely understand why sue is going on in our first traffic report at 320 talking about the mess out there um we have a reardon roundtable set for friday jane will be here she started the show with me today talking about some crime issues we're going to touch on that state rep steve butts will be here and state senator nick shore for our next guest this doesn't happen often but we have a theme song Listeners here in person, Josh Hammer. We created the Hammer Time intro for you, Josh, just because we thought it was so perfect. How are you? Mark, you know, we've done it virtually
2: so many times. It's really a pleasure to be here in studio with you, 97.1.
0: Well, it's awesome. And you reached out yesterday. Josh is the senior editor-at-large right now for Newsweek. He's the host of the Josh Hammer Show, which we're <clears throat> trying to get on 97.1 FM Talk maybe, right? We did lobbying today for that. Uh, so I want to hear more about that. But we I don't even know how many years ago we, we may have hooked up, but I remember seeing something online. And maybe it was even on or linked to on HotAir.com. I just had David on, and I thought, "Wow, Newsweek has sh- certainly changed." There's a conservative that's writing, you know, editorials and opinions. So we had John. I love you because you're a you're a deep thinker, but you also have a great approach to some of these modern issues. And then you you had messaged me yesterday saying you were in town, so let's talk about that. We're gonna hang out and have dinner tonight too. But why were you here? Why are you here?
2: Why am I here? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, Mark, I travel the country a lot to do a lot of campus speaking, a lot of federal society talks for the law schools, a lot of YAF, ISI talks for, for the college campuses. So this week's a particularly busy week for me. I'm here in town for two federal society talks. So for, for the audience, Fe- federal society is kind of the conservative libertarian yeah. legal organization. Probably I, I, it's really the hub of the conservative legal movement in America. So I, I do a lot of talks through them. I was at WashU St. Louis last night. I had a talk at SLU in downtown St. Louis earlier today talking about constitutional Law, talking about our colorblind constitution, how systemic racism is no longer a thing. So you can imagine the questions there got a, got, got a little spicy in
0: in, in the well. Q&A. No, so let me stop you there. Just in, in all seriousness, what was the reception like? Did you get did you get get a couple of questions that I mean I'm sure you can handle anything, but what was the tone like there from the students? Well, you
2: know, at washu la- last night. It's funny you should ask. So I, I I was telling someone here in the studio before we came on air together. It's actually really funny. So my talk at Washu was at 5:30 p.m. last night. Yeah, you know, it just so happened. Happened. What a coincidence that the mental health services student organization held a campus-wide cathartic group shout at precisely 5:30 p.m. I, I think that so was a strange. way. <laughs> yeah. So strange, right? It, 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 go figure. I think that I, was, I, I didn't I,
0: know such a thing existed, though. A group shout.
2: I, I, it was news to me as well. I, I can only imagine, though. Of course, it was a way of, of protesting my my mere presence there. But no, last night events. Went off pretty much without a hitch. Earlier today, it was a nice event at at, at Slu. I mean, you know, a engaged audience. They asked you right across the street,
0: right? Right that's across right. the street,
2: literally a few blocks where you and I are sitting are, are, are seated right now. And you know, some of the questions were, were were a little charged, but they were respectful. And that's that's all I ask, Mark. When I when I do these talks, all I ask is that you listen, and if you have questions, you're more
0: than free to disagree with me. Just just be respectful. That's what it's all about. Why why not have you know challenging questions? I think that's awesome. Now. You're at the University of Michigan tomorrow night. Um, how do you anticipate that will go, especially in Michigan considering the yep. climate's a little different than Missouri up there, right?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm flying out tomorrow morning, going straight to Michigan. I'm speaking for for YAF, Young America's Foundation, tomorrow night in Ann Arbor on the Israel Hamas conflict. Now, Michigan's a funny state because it has the largest Arab population of any state in the country. Right. Dearborn, Hamtramck, those suburbs of Detroit have you know huge Muslim population. We've seen massive pro Palestinian protests in the streets of these towns there. Now, Michigan also has a large Jewish population, but you know, having said that, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not taking any chances with security. I've been in touch with them about both private security on top of campus security there. So we're not we're not taking any chances there? But that's been interesting because I was just scrolling through the Twitter feed of the local YAF chapter earlier today, and they, they were tweeting about how they were posting flyers for my event all throughout the campus earlier today. Mark, not one of these flyers lasted for more than an hour. Within the hour, every single one was torn down, to which I say— Let's get some cameras. Shouldn't we know who is actually doing this? I mean, you probably should be expelled from, from a top-tier Look,
0: university. That, that is the antithesis of what should be happening exactly. at a top-tier university. It's just outrageous. But it doesn't surprise me based on what we've seen. Now, let, let's kind of segue into some of this anti-Semitism. I've said this a couple of times. There's not a lot that shocks me anymore, really. But- Some of the things I've seen by professors, by other people who, who maybe should know better, and they don't seem to be apologetic about it at all. Ripping down posters of kids who are hostages being held by terrorists, and that's not something that they want people to see. I don't know how to explain that. I really don't. You know, I'm pausing before answering
2: because I don't either. And it's just really sad, Mark. I mean, it is it is profoundly sad. You know, I mean, I, I was born in 1989. I mean, you know, my parents, me, our generations, we came up in kind of the golden era for, for American Jews, kind of those decades after the Holocaust, where the world still felt a little guilty over the six million deaths over in Europe there. And and for decades, anti-Semitism in America, sure. I mean, you know, the country clubs, the law firms, but it was really pretty under control. Right. I mean, when, when I was growing up, To this day, Mark, I have not honestly had a personal, viciously anti-Semitic incident in my life. We'll we'll see if that changes tomorrow night at the University of Michigan. Um, But up until now, I've, I've had a pretty good run of it. So, I, you know, we've seen what's happened over the past few years with the rise of the woke ideology, every time you have this kind of DEI, critical race theory divide, this dichotomy between the oppressed and the oppressors, the Jews and the Christians these days tend to be, are they're the oppressors, which, you know, news to the Jews, we're the most discriminated people in the history of all peoples, but somehow we're now the yeah. opp- oppressors. Interesting how that works. Right. So, uh, but, but having said all that, yes, I mean, I, I follow this, st- I, I like you, I eat, live and breathe this stuff, so I see what's happening, I read about how, how the Jews are the oppressors, but Some of what we've seen, I I was not prepared for it. I I genuinely was not prepared to see people just openly... Chanting on, on Ivy League schools to gas the Jews—we we
0: literally heard that at Princeton University, I think, yesterday. There was—you there was- you see, just even using the paratrooper on the yeah. uh, the posters w- is shocking. Now, I've spent a fair amount of time, Josh, this week breaking down and talking. I did it for a couple of different days early in the week, talking about Barry Weiss's speech um, at the uh, Barbara Cook uh, Federalists Association event. I'm guessing you've seen that and you've you've read what she wrote and. The thing that I think jumps out to me about what Barry did at the Free Press and what she's been kind of about, and I think this fits with your theme, is this is not just about what's happening in the Middle East. This is about Western civilization. And we have seen, and you and I and other people, we've talked about the indoctrination that's happening not only in colleges and high schools, and seeping into elementary schools. That's what makes this moment for me as a non jew certainly concerned about the situation in the Middle East. But this is Bigger than that, I think, at this point, isn't it? Oh, it's
2: much bigger than that. Yeah, Barry gave a great speech last Friday at the Federal Society convention. I, I could not be there in person, but I, I watched the full video of it a couple days ago. I, I actually messaged Barry. I said you did a great job because she, she did a great job. And you know, my it friend, was incredible. Yeah, my friends who were there said that she got one of the longest standing ovations that anyone has ever and had. She's not
0: even a lawyer. I mean, she's, she's not even yeah, a lawyer or hey, an hey, attorney hey, general or anything, right? Yeah, that's who usually gets invited to that event.
2: Correct. They've had U.S. attorneys general, uh, U.S. Supreme Court justices. I mean, she's not a lawyer. She's really not even a conservative in the Traditional sense of the term. She's kind of an anti woke liberal, right? And she was, you know, she joked about that during her speech. But, uh, look, it, it starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. Never, ever, ever. I mean, the Jews have been the world's most convenient scapegoat going back to the history of scapegoats going back thousands and thousands of years ago. But Jew hatred, which is—it's the chameleon of all bigotries because it, it is quintessentially irrational. You know, to the communists, the Jews were, you know, were rootless cosmopolitans and arch-capitalists. And then to the, to the capitalists, they were communists. I mean, like, it, it, Jew hatred just takes on whatever shape— Anyone wants to give it and it shifts and shapes and it's just it's quintessentially irrational. But because it is so irrational, it happens for reasons of deeper societal malaise and civilizational rot. That is ultimately what you have Jew hatred. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of much broader decay. And you know, things are not going particularly well in America right now. We have we have a million problems. You know, people, have, uh, uh, suicides, drug overdoses. You know, there's a crisis of loneliness, uh, deaths of despondency. Look, I-, I talked
0: to someone else today again about this education crisis and how kids are falling behind. I was talking to a, a fellow parent. I have kids in my in-, in their 20s, and then I have a young daughter as well. But my, my one son, who's in Houston, and I think both my kids, um, and they'll be okay, but they-, they were caught by the pandemic, you know, maybe at a bad time. It, it really put these kids behind. But even if you go to elementary school, and this is in even the good school districts, right? So what happens in urban areas where you have poverty? We're not talking about that. There's no presidential candidates now. I don't know. If there's no e- you know easy federal fix for that, but it's still an important topic. The mental health crisis, all these things, right?
2: You know, Mark, speaking of my travels, I was actually in uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island last week. I I was at Yale Law School and then Roger Williams Law School in Rhode Island. So I was hanging out in downtown Providence, Rhode Island for a little bit, waiting for my flight. I was at a coffee shop. I I went to a bathroom uh, in the coffee shop in Providence, Rhode Island. And for the first time in my entire life, I saw something on the wall. And I was just so struck by it that I took a photo of it and tweeted it out. It, It was an opioid rescue kit. Um, inside of a bathroom there in, in Providence, Rhode Island. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we're seeing popping up all throughout America. Right now. Look, this issue is actually very personal to me because my cousin, with whom I was very close, uh, overdosed and died from fentanyl about six years ago, actually. May his, may his memory be a blessing. So this, this issue has gotten very personal to me. I, I think last year, which is the most recent year for which we have statistics, it was roughly 106 to 108,000 Americans overdosed from drugs that number is up from 5,000. It was roughly 5,000 to 5,200 back in the early 1990s and 1992. So it's increased. I mean, you know, you, do, you do the math. I mean, that is astronomical, astronomical increase. It's, it's the equivalent of, of multiple airplanes essentially falling out of the sky on a given day of just disproportionately 18 to 34-year-old men. And when you have this kind of crisis, when you have people just searching for meaning, increasing secularization, lower church attendance, all of these factors combined— yeah, of course, that eventually it's going to burst out in anti-Semitism and Jew hatred because that's the way that it's bursted out for thousands of years. And, you know, as we know from the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, there's nothing new under the sun for better or for worse.
0: But, I, you know, I have genuine concerns and we can kind of, you know, slip into the presidential race. There's a lot of stuff that's on the line here in the next couple of years. And when I see the behavior of younger people in America and how they don't have an appreciation for the freedoms that we, you know, that many people fought for 80 years ago and that we enjoy— I don't know how you turn that around. I don't know how you get some of these kids in one of the best, um, I think, examples in the uh, you know the alternative media. I can't remember if it was campus reform or somebody goes out there on a college campus and, and starts to talk to them about Hamas and, and the Palestinians and people are willing to sign on to something in support of the Palestinians and then they say, you remember this at all? They say, well, we got to read you some of the things you know, just to be official here and they start telling them what Hamas is all about and right. what they do and how they hate LGBTQ people, etc. And then people take a Step. Oh, no, we can't support that. But there's so much groupthink on the part of and maybe it's the indoctrination. How do you turn that around? We used to kind of joke, Josh, because and you're younger than I am that, you know, what's the saying about being um, liberal when you're young and then you get into your 30s? You know, you start to pay taxes and you start paying attention to these issues a little differently. I don't know that that dynamic exists anymore. Sadly,
2: yes and no. I mean, there was a shock poll. I think it was the New York Times poll recently that actually did show that voters under the age of thirty five were basically split on Biden versus Trump. If that ends up, okay, well, the that's rematch. somewhat
0: encouraging. But
2: but that, but that was somewhat of an aberration, to be clear. I mean, I mean, the long you know the trend over the past twenty years has been roughly what you said. I mean, we'll see if that holds. I mean, maybe the Democrats really are just that catastrophically terrible that that trend is going to actually go back. Look, I think what you're seeing with the with the Palestinian issue and, and, and Hamas, which you know, I I feel like I need to just reiterate this to to the listeners, not that the listeners don't know this already. Hamas is a U.S.-EU-recognized terrorist organization. I mean, they are fundamentally indistinguishable from al-Qaeda or ISIS. In their 1988, I think it is, founding charter, they literally call for the death of every Jew and ultimately right. every infidel, which means, you know, Christian or anyone who doesn't subscribe to their particular version of radical Sunni Islam, the death of everyone around the world. But I think what you're seeing with these, these outbursts, these outpourings of support in the streets there, the waving of the flag, all these ridiculous slogans, globalize the intifada. It's just the current hot thing, and that's disgusting. But it's replaced Black Lives Matter. It replaced the Me yeah. Too. It replaced the Me Too movement. I mean, how it really did. It, it feels like the Me Too movement was a long time ago. But that yeah. was that was kind of the first big thing in the Trump era. Then it became Black Lives Matter, and now here we are. So it's just one thing after the other.
0: Hang on, I want to take you for just a little bit more here. I have an audio cut of the day coming up, but I want to talk specifically about where the Republicans are in the presidential race. Josh Hammer from Newsweek in town. We got much more coming up, plus an audio cut of the day. Hang in there. Audio cut of the day coming up. Here here in just a couple of moments. Sponsored by the Good Feet Store. We'll get to that. Josh Hammer is with us in the studio. Senior editor-at-large for Newsweek. We have spoken many times over the last few years, and he's in St. Louis. He was over at Washu last night at SLU today. Heading to Michigan tomorrow. Yes. We're going to hang out and have some uh, dinner. I'm taking you to Katie's Pizza and Pasta at Ballpark Village. Ballpark Village is a little touristy. You know, I think normally I wouldn't take someone to an area like that, but the restaurant is phenomenal. You're going to love it. It's all that matters. Yeah, that's cool. All right, let's talk presidential politics here. You are a Florida resident, if I'm not mistaken, right? You've been a fan of Governor Ron DeSantis, as I have been. I'm a little worried that that campaign is falling flat. I don't even know if there is a campaign anymore. Where do you stand currently On the Republican race, if there is one, Josh.
2: Look, I mean, Trump obviously has dominated the polls for a very long time, Mark. And it's becoming increasingly obvious that the DeSantis move is to go essentially all in in Iowa. You you know, you had you had that endorsement from Governor Kim Reynolds recently. I think people are expecting Bob Vanderplatz, the very influential head of the family leader organization there, to probably come out and endorse DeSantis. just a question of timing. The, the the question is does any of that matter I mean I mean Kim Reynolds got reelected that's the question I mean Kim Reynolds did get reelected in Iowa by the same margin essentially that DeSantis got reelected in Florida by a massive nineteen 19- I mean Kim Reynolds did to Iowa what DeSantis did to Florida which is turn an iconic purple state bright red she's wildly popular there in Iowa but Trump just has this this appeal and, and like yeah. I, like I, I just don't know what if anything can be done about that? Now, here's the thing about Iowa. You know, as you know, Mark, Iowa is a caucus process. It's not a primary process. Very difficult, borderline impossible to get reliable polling when you have a caucus system because it, it just depends on a million factors. I mean, what well, there's a blizzard in Des Moines? You know, in the middle of January. I mean, the polls go out the window immediately, right? So there's a lot of variables at play there. But I'm waiting to see some polls, ideally this week or next week, that reflect some sort of shift from from Kim,
0: Kim Reynolds. But it's. Re- but what about what about from Nikki Haley? The Kim Reynolds endorsement is important, but Nikki Haley seems to be surging. I think she did quite well at the debate last week. Uh, what are your thoughts there?
2: So, you know, to, uh, Nikki Haley's not really my cup of tea, but to her credit, she she's polling Decently well, as far as the non-Trump candidates go across all three of the first states. I think she's she's better positioned in New Hampshire and South Carolina than she, than she is in Iowa. I'm not sure that her brand really plays particularly well for the Christian activists there. Right there, there Yeah, they're there
0: are different. But so that kind of brings us into let's say let's just say DeSantis wins Iowa. Mm-hmm. Then what is yeah right is there a, so what right so the field would have to consolidate
2: shockingly quickly. Um, you know, like Haley, Vivek, these people would have to start dropping out really by. South Carolina at the latest, I mean you know in two thousand and sixteen there was no consolidation until after super tuesday it was, it was way, way too late at that point there. so if DeSantis actually wins by call it seven eight points or more in Iowa, and to be clear, that's not looking super likely, but like even even if that happens he still would need some sort of very quick field consolidation. Yeah, and I don't know what
0: that's going to be. You know, the Trump thing is so, well, it's just fascinating, and I could not have been, and the audience knows this, Josh, could not have been more wrong about what happened in 2016. But going back to that time, there's there's always this story that I tell. You're going to be at our airport tomorrow flying up to Michigan. I was in a queue for Southwest Airlines. You know, you have to line up if you're A, B, C. And it was right before Super Tuesday. So this was the end of February, and they had CNN on the televisions. Marco, Little Marco was still in the race. Ted Cruz was still in the race. And Trump. So we're all standing in line. What do people do? They kind of look at their phone. We're looking around. We're waiting to get up there. And the TV was on, and Marco Rubio came on in the soundbite, right? And everyone's still kind of looking at their phones. And then Ted Cruz comes on in the soundbite, and everyone's looking at their phones. And then Donald Trump comes on. I mean, I wish I had a video of this. Three-quarters of the heads just turn. And they look. And not all those people probably supported him, but they can't look away, right? So there is this... And and I one of the things that I missed during that period was the fact that there were so many people that just are disconnected from what the elites haven't done for them, right? They feel like nobody represents them. And I was told by people here in Missouri, you know, union people, that, you know, this is coming. And there, there was something that certainly manifested itself into a big wave. Now, I don't know where those people are today. I still talk to a lot of people that say they voted for Trump twice. We we take, you know, some polls, if you will, callers on the radio station. They've moved on. I have some of the most conservative folks that I know in mid-Missouri where I just went hunting last weekend. They were all in on Trump. They love Trump. They still love him, but they think it's time for somebody else in the White House. The polling, though, doesn't pick up on that at all.
2: No, it really doesn't. And look, the other thing to bear in mind about Trump, I mean, you know, he obviously is facing the 91 criminal counts, the four separate indictments, He's also limited to only one term. I mean, I mean, even if all goes according to plan, you know, the ducks have to be lined up in a, a basically in a row from day one to have any shot at implementing any kind of agenda. There's a lot of talk of the, at the end of his first term about Schedule F, which is kind of D.C. nerdy speak for basically getting the president the ability to fire all insubordinate bureaucrats there to actually take full control. Trump would actually have to get that done in the first few months of his presidency. He would, he would need a very compliant House and Senate because, you know— it, two years later, then it's a midterm election, then your presidency is almost over. So, I mean, that is another very important data point to bear in mind here. Look, I, I support, I have spoken and written in strong defense of a lot of the intellectual stuff that Trump actually brought to the table. And, you know, to an extent saying intellectual Trump is kind of an oxymoron because that's, it's, it is, it's right? not really how he talks. <laughs> no. But but when it comes to trade, when it comes to foreign policy, I, I, I've been very supportive of a lot of that. But again, the question is, it looks like Republicans are going up against a, a uniquely senile person in Joe Biden who is mentally and, and physically debilitating before our very eyes. Do you really want to nominate someone who is just a few years younger, who is facing the possibility of decades, if not centuries, of jail time? I'm with
0: you on that. I don't, you know, I don't know how, but I don't see a path at this point. We've been talking about this for a while. Hey, we're going to have a great dinner and talk about more of this tonight. Maybe we should record it, play it back tomorrow. Josh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. It's great to meet you in person, finally. And Mark, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Now the audio cut of the day.
0: All right, cut of the day is sponsored by my friends at the Good Feet. So I started with this this afternoon. I'm going to wrap with it because I had a um, a moderate Democrat, a liberal though, turn me on to this from my sister station, my former station, Cam Wicks. There was a guy by the name of Kurt Weigel. I don't know Kurt. But he is living in a fantasy world. He's the senior vice president, chief downtown officer of Greater St. Louis, Inc. And he was asked about crime on, um, well, in downtown in particular. I hate to do this with Josh sitting here because he's going to walk around downtown. I already joke with him about Kevlar. But here's what Kurt said. I'll tell you, that what I've seen since being here, I've been here about 14 months now, is a pretty extraordinary change just in that time. And, and we're not even close to where we need to be. But just the amount of foot traffic I see downtown, I'm, I'm hearing what? people speak differently about downtown. Nope. Um, a lot more positive language uh-huh. coming from just sort of the, the person on the street nope. all the way up to through big investors. No, that's not happening at all, but he thinks it is. I'm hearing a different tone about downtown. And then and you're seeing it on the streets, too. And, you know, just like I said, the activity levels, the amount of, of, uh, of events and other activations that are happening on the streets. And then the discussions we're having on bigger projects, I think it's all moving in the right direction. So that would be what's the what word I'm looking for here? Delusional on the part of Mr. Weigel. And even the Democrats in the audience listening this morning on my sister station, my former station, realized that. I don't know how you fix that. Have a great night. We'll talk tomorrow at three. Get more at 971 talk.com.